Okay, good. Good to be together. Thank you. Thank you for liking each other. But maybe we could just save that, save that for later. This is good. This is a good problem to have. There were many moments where, over the last year, where what just happened didn't happen at all. Because <laughs> there's like one of us in here with the camera, so I hate to, to break it up, but um, good to be together. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We do have Bibles. If you'd like a Bible, go ahead and just raise your hand. They have been bathed in Purell and already, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, if you need a Bible and you do need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up. I wish it always looked this way because I feel like having like fire coming out behind me and you feeling like a, something could fall on your head is the best way to humbly come before the word of God. Amen. All right. So we are in a new sermon series. We just wrapped up several decades or what felt like decades in the gospel of Luke. And now we are in the book of James. The reason Luke took so long was because we went verse by verse throughout the whole gospel. And in James, we're going to do it a little bit different over the summer. We're going to go kind of theme or section by section as we look at this letter, which was a circular letter written by the apostle James to a group of churches. And so we think that it is a great kind of next step for us as a church, moving from the teachings of Jesus to actually a letter written by a person who perhaps spent more time with Jesus um, than any other of the New Testament writers. James, the brother of Jesus, lived much of his life with Jesus. We, when we study the Gospels, we forget that they're this like tiny snapshot of a portion of the life of Jesus, but that we forget that Jesus lived for around 30 years in basic like obscurity as the member of a family and, and, um, and most likely part of a small family business of carpentry where, where Jesus lived and he worked and he interacted with his with his family. Now, we don't know all the inner workings of those relationships, but the gospel writer John tells us that in the life of Jesus, his brothers were not fans. And so James, who wrote this letter, um, what, what we can surmise from that is that James was a person who moved from uh, skepticism and cynicism and perhaps even sort of like younger brother jealousy to um, a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, who was not just his brother, but his savior and his Lord. And so we're going to spend the next eight or so weeks diving deeply into this letter that James wrote to the church. And our theme in this, in this series is going to be living faith. So we're exploring what does it look like to live out faith in Jesus? And today we're looking at this theme of faith and doers. In our passage today, we're going to read some of the more famous sayings in the New Testament. You'll, you'll hear these words and, and be reminded of things maybe you heard, maybe isolated um, throughout your life. But what we want to do is, is look at this, this text together, this sacred text, the scriptures, and we want to come before it not just looking for some neat sayings or some spiritual encouragement, but with, as we'll read today, a heart that desires to obey 
the word that we encounter. And so I'm going to read from James chapter one. We're going to start in verses 19 to 27. This great passage on hearing and doing the word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word to us today. So I was blessed with the great joy and hardship of growing up as a PK. I know that's sort of insider language to some of you, but I'm talking about growing up as a pastor's kid. And some of you, like a, a select few, know exactly what I'm talking about. And I swore, I swore for many years that I would never go into the family business. I was, I was not going to do it. And it wasn't out of bitterness to my dad. Um, I just saw how hard it was to be faithful to people who were fickle and, and to, to stand alongside people dealing with birth and death and disease and marriage and divorce and, and addiction and all these things, I swore, I said, I will never do that. And I wanted to serve Jesus with my life. I, I genuinely did, but I wanted to do that as the shortstop for the San Francisco Giants. That was, that was the plan. And they found someone better. And, and the Lord had a different, a different plan for me. And so God called me to be a pastor and I, and I, and I really felt this call in college. And um, it was during this season that I began to look back with, with kind of with, not just with um, pain, but with a lot of joy at what I got to witness in um, my dad's life as a pastor. And so the reason I bring him up in this story is, um, is because as a young boy and as a young man and as a young pastor, I remember my dad telling me that this passage that we just read, and in particular, the final paragraph of this passage, he, he said, this is the measure. This passage is, is the standard for faithfulness as a minister. For him, this was sort of the marching orders of, of how, do we, how do I live as a, as a minister of the gospel, certainly even at a more basic level as a follower of Jesus, but, but what if this was the standard for how the church viewed their mission in our world? So let me read it to you again, that the ending part of our passage, verses 26 to 27. I want to invite you to hear it one more time. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, 
this person's religion or spirituality or faith is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is the measure. Now, that's what James says pure religion actually is. And so today we're going to look at this theme of faith and doers. More specifically, I want to consider what does it look like to live out the gospel? What does doing the gospel actually look like in the lives of followers of Jesus? And so if that is the measure, I think that there's three virtues. And I'm just going to give you the punchline of the sermon right now. um, And then we'll backtrack a little bit. But there are three virtues that reveal if you are doing or living the gospel. And they are this, wisdom, compassion, and holiness. Now we're going to explore these virtues of the Christian life. We're going we're gonna to learn like what does it look like. Because again, as we, as, as we have been saying these last couple of weeks, James is intensely practical. But we're not going to start with doing. We're going to start with something else. We're going to start with understanding what it means to receive the gospel. How do we actually receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Because we can't do something that we haven't received. And so to that end, we're going to backtrack a little bit. So I want you to turn just one verse before the passage that we looked at today. This is James chapter one, verse 18. And I want you to hear these words from James. He says this, of his own will, and he's talking about God. Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James, this is an incredibly practical letter that he's written, but he begins the letter by announcing the reality of spiritual birth. It's a huge mistake to think that James is bringing us some kind of like Christian moralism or, or to use a phrase of our day, James is just saying, do better. James starts by declaring that there is a spiritual birth that has to happen in the life of a person so that they can do what God is calling them to do. And James begins by giving us this great gospel announcement that none of us chose God. In fact, he chose us. And that's a spiritual reality not to be debated, which it often is in in the church. It's actually to be celebrated. This, This reality that it is God who has rebirthed us spiritually into his family. And James begins by telling us that. And it says that he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now that word, word, is a word, I wrote that sentence, it didn't make sense, but I think you know what I'm saying. The word word is a word in the New Testament, certainly in the passage that we just read, it appears multiple times, the word word. It is all over the New Testament and that word is logos. The gospel writer John begins his, begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And he's talking about what theologians have referred to as the divine utterance or the divine expression, which, hear me, it is not sort of a mystical idea or statement. It is a person, and that person is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And so what James is doing is he's talking about receiving the word and doing the word. What he is saying is that we have been brought forth into spiritual birth by the word Jesus Christ, and in particular, the gospel or the good news that points to his saving power in our lives and in our world. And so James doesn't start by saying, do the gospel. He says, you need to receive the gospel. Listen here to how he tells us to do that. In verse 19, we're back in our text. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And listen to this. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now here's an interesting thing that James is doing. I need you to track with me here. He just told us that the word has saved us, but now he is telling us that that word is able to save us. And the language that he uses is not so much past tense, but it's an actual, a continual saving and salvation that happens in the people of God as they are sanctified, as they grow up into maturity, into the person of Jesus. James is telling us that that starts with the word and that that continues with the word. And so what he does in our text is James is, is constantly bringing us into wisdom literature, which is to teach a truth through contrast. So what he does is he is revealing this contrast. He's saying, I want you to put away filthiness and anger and wickedness. And instead of that, I want you to receive continually, daily, often, together, the word of truth, the word of Christ, what he calls the implanted word. We have been brought forth by the word of truth, but that word is never done with us. David Foster Wallace once said this, he says, the truth will set you free, but not until it's done with you. And that is life in Christ. That is the life of salvation where we are, yes, brought into a new family, birthed into salvation, but that that process is ongoing. And James will tell you us that there is a way that that continues to happen. And it's here again in this metaphor that he brings to us in verses 22 to 25. I know we're moving quickly, but we're going to go right back into our text. He would say this, that God has brought us forth by the word of truth. He tells us to receive the word of truth and then listen to this, same word. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what James is doing is he's, he's not like anti hearing. He's, 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 he's against the idea that we would only hear the word without a desire to act upon it. And so he brings us into this, this metaphor. He brings us into this, this metaphor of a story of two people who look deeply into something. 
One of them is changed and one of them isn't. And that is the contrast that he is bringing us into. He says in our text here, he says, there's a person who constantly wants to hear. Maybe they want to hear spiritual truth. Maybe they want to hear more sermons. And they're constantly looking into what he describes as a mirror, but they're just looking at themselves. And then they walk away unchanged. Now, I don't know if there's a more potent metaphor for our time as the people of God, as the church. Are we hearers of the word or are we those who hear the word with a heart to do it? So we'll think of it this way. Every metric tells us that over the past 16 to 18 months, church attendance has gone down. Do you know this? You know this. And there's hardly a church that hasn't experienced that, um, that attendance drop, including this one that we're a part of as well. And so while church attendance is down, and there's a litany of reasons why that is, and um, we're not going to get into all of those, but church attendance is down. But I believe that church consumption is doing just great. It's up, if anything. Again, many of us have heard more sermons in the last 16 to 18 months than perhaps we have in the last six years. The amount of digital content, of religious and spiritual content that's just at our fingertips all the time, it's just, it's just coming at us all the time. And we can sort of curate our spiritual life with this podcast, this sermon, this worship band, this gifted teacher, this compelling TED Talk style sermon, we just completely inundate ourselves with spirituality. And so to that end, hearing the word is alive and well. Church attendance might be down on a Sunday. And again, I'm not referring to those who are not yet ready to gather with the church in person, but church attendance might be down, but, but religious consumption is doing just great. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening right now as the gathered church. Whether we're gathered here in this space or, or at home listening. And my role right now, and this isn't every week, but when I get this sacred privilege to come up here to this space with you and to open God's word, my role is, is to bring the church to the well that is the scriptures and say, drink. The role of the shepherd, of the pastor is to take the sheep, and I say that with no condescension, but to take the sheep into the pasture and say, eat. Or to come to the scriptures on a Sunday morning and say, as a community of Christ that has been birthed by the word of truth, this is what we must do. And religious consumption doesn't lead to that kind of obedience. You could hear six sermons a week and do nothing about it. And in fact, I would argue that many of us, that is what we actually do. We consume religious content, but not with the heart and in a community that says we will obey Jesus wherever he leads us and in whatever he tells us to do. 
So what the world does not need, what the church does not need is a rise in attendance. It needs a rise in, in, in engagement. 400 passionate followers of Jesus that are engaged in the mission of Christ can do far more than 4,000 attenders of a weekly religious experience. And the history of the church has proven that to be true. Oftentimes when the church is small and rebuilding, it's when our engagement rises in significant ways where we move from hearers of the word to doers of the word. And that is exactly what James is telling us to do. He says, so there's a person who looks into the mirror. They're looking into a mirror of themselves and they walk away and they immediately forget who they are. But now here's the contrast back into the metaphor. There is one who looks deeply into the law of liberty and perseveres. Now what James does is he, he, he uses the words word and law almost interchangeably. So he's continuing to basically say the same kind of thing. There's a person who looks deeply into the word of Christ, the gospel as revealed to us in the scriptures and has a heart to obey. And he says that person. And I would say, again, this is not just a like devotional to individuals, but that community will be blessed in what they do. So I'll say this, if we find that we're consuming religious kind of spiritual content all the time and we're unchanged, we shouldn't be surprised because there's a difference in consuming content and coming before Jesus and learning his ways with a heart to live out faith. I know that's kind of heavy handed, but I think that's our experience. That's certainly my experience. So here's the question, Here we, here's, here's where we move forward. What does it look like to do the gospel and to live it out? What does it look like to not just be a hearers? Do you remember, do you remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount and um, he's teaching all the, and many believe that James is sort of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying these words, whoever hears, my words and does them will be blessed. And he describes this person like, like someone who builds their house on a rock. Whoever looks deeply into the scriptures with a heart to follow the way of Christ, that person will be blessed as they do that. So what does that look like? How do we know that we're doing the gospel? How do we know that we're living it out? How do we know that we're not just hearing the gospel, but we're actually receiving it and doing it? What's the measure? And I think James tells us, remember the punchline? These three virtues, wisdom, compassion, and holiness. James is telling us that's, if you see those grow up in your life and in your community, if they spring up within the community of faith, then you're actually doing this, not just talking about it or not just hearing it. Okay, so let's look at that. Verse 26, James yet again talks to us about speech. Verse 26, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, 
this person's religion is, worth, is worthless. So James consistently in his letter connects the, the theme of wisdom with the way that we talk to one another. And this isn't just James. Read the book of Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes, read the wisdom literature of, of scripture and you will see a constant connection to the way that we talk and to the amount of wisdom that we actually hold in our lives. So I will say this, if you are constantly enmeshed in controversy and arguments, whether that's online or in person in face-to-face relationships, if, you, if we can't get along with people, if as Adam said last week, we are quick to speak, slow to listen and quick to anger, if that's you, James would go as far to say as I'm not sure that the good news of Jesus has worked its way into your heart in a real and meaningful way. It's actually stronger than that. He says it's your religion is worthless. It's a harsh word. And so we're going to dig even more deeply into that theme because in, 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 in two weeks, we're going to have a sermon on faith and the tongue. And so I'll just leave it at that for you now because I have some other things that we need to look at in this text. But I want to encourage you to simply ask the question, does the way that I talk to people reveal and even, and even prove that the good news of Jesus has worked its way into my heart? Just pay, I want to encourage you just to pay attention to that. And if you can't figure it out, just ask someone who knows you. They'll tell you if you ask them. I promise. My kids tell me all the time. James goes further. He, begin, he, he talks about the tongue. He says, wisdom is evidence that, that you're doing the gospel. But there's two other um, evidences that God's ways are working themselves out through us and it's compassion and holiness. And I want to say this, I think that the church is always in danger of losing these two things. Now, here's what I mean. The church is called to both compassion and holiness, but what we often do is we separate compassion and holiness. We will treat them as like, it's either one or the other. The church, we've got churches that are compassionate and they care about the world. And we've got churches that are holy and they care about God. One of the ways this is evident it, it, that I've even heard is um, we have become, I think as, as the church in general, we've become so polarized by our time that if we even begin to talk about themes like justice or compassion, something rises up in some of us that says, oh, you're moving away from the gospel. We're moving away from the truth. And to that I would say, are we reading the same Bible? Are we following the same king who is compassionate and holy simultaneously? And we as a church called to embody his ways in life? Let's talk about compassion, okay? Compassion in James here is evidenced through care for the vulnerable. That's the way, so compassion isn't like nice feelings for people. It's not like getting choked up during a commercial. It's actually evidenced through caring for the most vulnerable. James calls it pure religion. He says this, pure religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. 
Now, there are many groups that James could have talked about, groups of oppressed people, groups of people who'd been forgotten, but he chose specifically to talk about orphans and widows, which um, in the scriptures, orphans and widows, it's almost like a euphemism for the most vulnerable people in society, the most easily forgotten in the culture. Now, here's what we need to remember. Just take a deep breath when I say this. This is a patriarchal society, okay? Now, before you get worked up about that, let me just tell you what I mean by that. So this is a society where to be husbandless or to be fatherless would put you in the most vulnerable position in that culture and in that society. And so if you were fatherless or husbandless, that would often mean that economically you were impoverished. It could mean that you would result to a life of of stealing or of crime to sort of provide for yourself and the people that you care about. Being fatherless or husbandless would make a person perhaps more susceptible to sex slavery through prostitution. And because there's no one to take care of you. And this is the, this was what was supposed to happen in that society. It often didn't, but this was the ideal. And so now remember Jesus, I mean, James is writing a letter expressing the heart of Jesus to a community as their leader. He is saying this will know if the good news of Jesus has worked its way into your hearts and into your communities if the most vulnerable people are cared for, if the people who are most easily forgotten by society are cared for in the community of Christ, then we'll call that pure religion. He says that would be the measure, mercy, love, compassion. So I told you this was, this was my dad's life verse in his vocation as a pastor. And so what it meant that he was that as a pastor, he didn't view himself as simply a biological father to me and my brother and my sister. He was a spiritual father to our friends and in particular the young people in our community. We lived in this kind of small, um, this small town in Northern California. He was a spiritual father to the fatherless, to the spiritually homeless. Because God in his word had said, that is what it looks like to live out the way of Jesus, is to care for the most vulnerable. And this is consistent throughout the entire New Testament. I'll say one more thing about this. In the phrase, visit orphans and widows, is not sort of like... Um, it's not like a 15 minute like hospital visit or like you drop a meal off for people that are most vulnerable. The word visit in, in the gospel of Luke, in the beginning, there's this prayer that comes from Zechariah, and Zechariah prays this prayer, which basically says, God is about to visit us. And he's talking about the baby Jesus Christ that would be born into the world. And so did Jesus kind of drop in for a quick visit? Did Jesus stop by for coffee? No, Jesus emptied himself, we are told in the scriptures, and gave himself completely to our broken world all the way to the cross. And that is what it means to visit the most vulnerable. We look to him, the most compassionate person who has ever lived, and he would tell us, do this. Visit orphans and widows in their distress, in their affliction, and, and 
And this is very important. And keep yourself unstained from the world. So not compassion or holiness, but compassion and holiness lived out. Holiness is evidenced in the community of Christ by cultivating a compelling counterculture. That's what the community of Christ is to do, is to cultivate a compelling counterculture. I love the way my professor Gary Brashears used to say it. Holiness is to be set apart to God for the world. The focus is not being set apart from the world. It's the focus is to be set apart to God for the sake of the world. That is what holiness is in the scriptures. And that is how we are to live. So the church should not look like the world. The church should not give a thumbs up to the sexual norms and ideologies and greed and um, self-congratulatory living in ways of the world. The, The church should not give a thumbs up to that in the name of compassion. The church should look and live differently than the ideologies of the world. In John Tyson's book, The Beautiful Resistance, he begins his book by telling a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer was a brilliant and successful and a young theologian in the 1930s um, in Germany. And so at that point, the Nazism is just is massively rising, not just in Germany, but in, in Europe. And as a follower, as a loyal follower of Jesus, he rejected the ways of the Third Reich. And even as the church and many of his sort of theological um, friends, as they would sort of become complicit with the ways of the Third Reich in Germany, Bonhoeffer was committed to a different way. And so what happened was, um, this was really hard to do, and so he, he started a small seminary of just about like, this is not like a big church, this is like a small seminary of about a couple dozen future pastors. And so what they would do in this little seminary is they lived in simplicity. They lived studying the scriptures together. They lived and shared a common life that was rooted around the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what they did. So they did just Christianity, to be honest. And Bonhoeffer's academic friends were suspicious of it. They were suspicious that their highly intelligent friend was becoming kind of like a religious fanatic in in his little seminary out there in this little town of Finkenwald. Say that to your neighbor, Finkenwald, I'm kidding. So one of his friends, his friends would come to visit him and they're kind of trying to talk him off the ledge, okay? So one of his friends, a man named Wilhelm Niesel, went to visit Bonhoeffer to see what all this spiritualism, all this religion was actually about. And what Bonhoeffer did, this is, this is amazing, what Bonhoeffer did is he came and, Wilhelm came and, and, and visited him and Bonhoeffer said, get in my boat. And he rowed him, they went on a little rowing adventure, adventure across the sound And then they walked up a a short hill and um, to their backs, they could see the tiny seminary in in this little town, a couple dozen pastors learning how to follow Jesus together. But in front of them 
was a Nazi war base where planes would fly in and out and where soldiers would march and where an in, a continual indoctrination of hate and evil was pressed into the hearts of young German men so that they would live out hate to the fullest degree. And Wilhelm's like, why are you doing all this? And Bonhoeffer looked at his friend and he pointed at the Nazi base and he said, or I'm sorry, he pointed at the seminary and he said, this has to be better than that. This has to be stronger than that. This community has to be more compelling than the ways of the world. So what is holiness? Holiness is when the church of Christ is set apart to God for the sake of the world. The church cultivates a compelling counterculture where compassion and holiness are not divorced, but they're brought together in the name of Jesus. Amen? Where we love the most vulnerable, where we don't just spend our time critiquing the ways of the world, we show a better way. We live out a better way. We show a better way to be married. We show a better way to be single. We show a better way to live and exist in the business world. We show a better way to parent. We show a better way of friendship. We show a better way that is devoted to Jesus in a world of compromise, in a world of people that constantly look in the mirror and forget who they are. We look into the scriptures that point to Jesus with a heart to do it, and God can work with that. God can change the world through that. And that's actually what happens. That's act when we read the New Testament, we are looking at evidence that God can change the world with a few people who say, I'm not just going to hear spiritual content. I'm going to do the way of Jesus in whatever sphere that I walk into. That is what we are called into. And it's expressed in wisdom and compassion and holiness. Pay attention to the way that you talk to people. Does the way that you speak to people exemplify the truth of Christ? Is it just truth or is it truth and love? Consider who are the most vulnerable people that are in your life. What would it look like to love and give yourself to them, to visit them in the way that Jesus has visited us in our broken world? And holiness... We are building a community of Christ for the world, not a community of Christ from the world, not away from the world. We only move away from the world so that we can get our identity, we can get our ideology, we can get our truth from God so that we can enter back into the world with something to offer, which may or may not be received. That's not our business. Our business is to follow Jesus in his way and in his will to obey him. And our aim each week when we come to the scriptures, and James will constantly bring us into this, is not to just hear a sermon, but to do it. And may that happen in our life, in our community. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for, for shining your light into a dark world. Many are wandering in our time. Many are unsure of who they are, but we don't have to live that way because you have shown us a greater way, a truer way. And so we pray, God, that as a community we would, that we would receive the gospel, that we would hear it daily. Paul tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so we open our ears to you. And we open our hearts to you. And we open our hands to you. I invite you even right now to, if, if you're willing to do this, this may be different, but would you stretch out your hands right now? As an act of worship, we, we come before the living God and say, teach us. Father, teach us your ways. We commit our way to you. We consecrate our lives before you. Show us how to live. Show us how to love. Teach us how to think. Guide our steps, we pray. Amen.